he calls us in this psalm to praise him for his mighty deeds, the things that he has done in times past in redemptive history. And of course, there are many things that he has done and that are recorded in scripture, but the, the greatest thing that he has done is the glorious gospel of his grace by sending his one and only son. Well, welcome back to Midweek Musings. I'm Pastor Taylor and here again with Pastor Daniel. And today we're bringing a conclusion to our Summer in the Psalms. And we looked at Psalm 150 for that conclusion, the very last Psalm. The big takeaway we saw together is that because the Lord our God is very great, he deserves very great praise from all that he has made. We also found in the Psalm, as we're looking at it from a Christ-centered perspective, that the more we see the greatness of God in the person and work of Jesus Christ, then the more our hearts will be drawn to praise him greatly in life. Yes, brother, I love that simple but memorable summary of the psalm of God's greatness and therefore him being worthy of great praise and how you focused our attention on Christ. It was a beautiful uh, and yet simple explanation of how we're supposed to look at that psalm. And, and as we did look at that psalm, was there any vivid imagery in the psalm that helps us to see what it's telling us about? Yeah. So we considered three different points, the object of our praise, the orchestra of praise, and the ovation of praise at the end. And so kind of zero in again on that first one, the object of our praise. We hear in this psalm, although it doesn't come out in the English, uh, in the Hebrew, the original we hear the hallelujah, which is a command, hallelujah, up front, and then the suffix added onto it, the ja, which is short for Yahweh. And that name is that special covenant name that God revealed to Moses and Israel, uh, there with Moses at the burning bush, revealing his name, Yahweh, uh, this is who I am. Go tell Pharaoh, go tell the people of Israel, I am that I am which is a statement of his supreme greatness, his holiness, kind of similar to the phrases that we find in the New Testament, like the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and end. Here, with these kinds of titles that God gives himself, we're reaching the very limits of human language. There's no way for us to explain more who he is, and we are left to just stand in awe of his supreme majesty. And that's why each line of this psalm begins with that Hallelujah, that command calling us to praise him, to give him very great praise, to love him and delight in him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we also looked at how in the opening of the psalm, it shows us where we are to praise him. It says in his sanctuary, praise him in his sanctuary, which is, we could say, his holy place. And the next verse or the next line there seems to indicate that it doesn't only refer to the temple made by hands that the Jews were called to worship in, but instead, as it says, the mighty heavens, using that term from Genesis 1, where God created the expansive skies above. And so in that word, reminded that even the vastness of space, which is a mind blowing in its size and magnitude, cannot contain Yahweh, who is infinitely greater. And nonetheless, in redemptive history, we find that in his humility, the great I am brought his glorious presence down to dwell with his people Israel there in that temple for thousands of years. And then in an even greater act of humility, the great I am took up permanent residence in the human nature that he took from the young Virgin Mary 
in the person of Jesus Christ. And we find that Paul says in Colossians 2 verse 9, that in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And so in a sense, Jesus is the true sanctuary of God where he dwells now in the mighty heavens. That's a good word, brother. I love how you highlighted in the sermon that word hallelujah is a command. I don't always think of that word hallelujah in that light, and I sometimes think of it in a different way. But it's important to remember that 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 word hallelujah is a command to praise Yahweh, and ultimately also to praise the Lord Jesus as you've been highlighting. And just to remember that as we come into worship, that God is not just suggesting that we sing or praise him or he's not just giving us a, a nudge in that way. He's commanding us. He's commanding all of creation to praise him because he is great and he is awesome. And as you've said, he has done all of these things for us, especially in Jesus Christ. And so he He is worthy of our worship. And so we should come with that knowledge when we hear the, the call to worship, ready to come and, and to praise him. That's right. And we find that he calls us in this psalm to praise him for his mighty deeds, the things that he has done in times past in redemptive history. And of course, there are many things that he has done and that are recorded in scripture, but the, the greatest thing that he has done is the glorious gospel of his grace by sending his one and only son to live and die in our place and rise again from the dead to redeem us from our sin and misery and to restore all things again. We are ultimately to praise Yahweh through the person and work of Jesus Christ. We can't truly know God apart from Jesus. Mm. As he said, no one comes to the Father except through me. And so as this psalm is commanding us to praise him with all that we are and all that we have, we also have to see it through Jesus and what mm. he has done for us. That's an important word. That's what separates us from just religion in general of worshiping God in just some generic sense. And now we praise God through Jesus Christ. He is the one mediator between God and man. And you're also reminding us in this psalm that our, our worship is heavenly. Like you're saying, we're, we're worshiping God with the saints that have gone before us, with the angels of heaven. I think of Hebrews 12, 23. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gathering. And eventually he says, and you've come to, to Jesus, right? The mediator of a new covenant whose blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And that's what you're reminding of us in this psalm, which is incredibly fitting. Mm. That's right. And the middle section of this psalm, as we're brought into that heavenly court to praise God and to come to Jesus and praise him, the middle of the psalm shows us how God wants us to praise him by giving us this description of the orchestra of praise. And it describes various instruments. And we can think about how they're used in old times there in the temple worship of Israel, but then also just generally how these instruments can be used to accompany our praise and how these instruments can orient our hearts in a sense towards the truths mm. that we are considering in mm. God's word and the truths that we are praising him for. For example, we find the trumpets in the beginning, which has a rousing tone, right? It's used in the Old Testament to call people to wake up or to announce the arrival of a king or to stir up the soldiers in courage. And so it's fitting for the opening of kind of worship as we find in the psalm. And then the harps and the lyres, uh, these are stringed instruments that would bring a kind of soothing relief to a person and good for melody as well. 
And we considered how even young David was brought into the kingly courts of King Saul to play for him when his heart was troubled. And it brought a sort of relief to his bones and to his heart in that time. And the tambourines and the wind instruments go along with the command to praise God. Also with dancing, it says in this psalm, we can think about Miriam and how after the exodus, she took up the tambourine with the rest of the women and went about dancing joyfully. And in that, we see how God is calling us not just to express praise to him intellectually or philosophically, but he has made us body and soul and he wants Mm. all of us to praise him, our whole body, our whole soul, all of us lifting up in joy and praise to God. And then the last instruments that are mentioned are the the cymbals. Uh, So these loud clashing cymbals, which brings it kind of to a crescendo, the climax, the grand finale. So Pastor Daniel, as we're considering these instruments, what are your thoughts? You just recently preached on the second commandment Mm. in the evening service on how to rightly worship God. How would we rightly apply this psalm and even the use of instruments in our worship today according to the second commandment and the regulative principle of worship that we hold to in the Reformed tradition? Hmm. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, the regulative principle of worship is a principle that simply means we worship God according to his word, that God's word regulates what we do in worship. And we usually distinguish between what's called elements and circumstances. An element in worship is what God has called us to do in worship. You think of preaching and reading the word of God, participating in the sacraments, prayer, and even in prayer or singing. These are things that God explicitly commands. Even in new covenant worship, we do these things. And when we think of the circumstances of worship, that has to do with how we do the elements, right? How do you pray? Um, Do you pray through set prayers or do you pray spontaneously? When you preach, do you preach through a book of the Bible or do you preach topical? These are things that are governed by wisdom. And when we think of instruments, those fall under the category of circumstances where God calls us to pray and to sing. And how we do that is governed by wisdom that comes from God's word as well, the principles of God's word. And so I think as we look at a psalm like this, we, we rightly recognize to a degree it's connected to the old covenant form of worship. But we draw from that psalm and from other places of scripture the principles of how God desires to be praised as well. What were the purpose of these instruments for the worship of God? And then through Christ and in the new covenant, we think, okay, how does this fit with our new covenant worship? And I think that when it comes to instruments, there's great freedom in how God wants us to worship. There's a a nice simplicity to New Testament worship because God knows the gospel is going out to the nations. And that as the gospel goes out and people from different cultures and tribes and tongues are going to be called to Christ, the nuts and bolts are going to be the same. But how those things are carried out are going to look different, even instrumentation and and things of that nature. And so I think we have some freedom in this regard to use many or very few instruments, depending even on our context and what would help us to do those elements of worship well, of praising God, of hearing his word and of prayer together. That's so helpful, and thank you for that wisdom in applying those principles and that truth as it relates to this passage. Very helpful. Thank you, Pastor Daniel. Yeah, if I could just riff on what you were saying too earlier when you're highlighting how these instruments help us to praise God, I'm reminded that you know the Word of God and the Gospel of Jesus, it's not only true, but it's beautiful. Mm. And I think yeah. sometimes, especially in Reformed worship, we can lose that essential element of our worship, which is it's meant to be beautiful as well. 
It's not just to be true, 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 but connected with that is the beauty of the gospel. And I think sometimes instrumentation played well can help us to sense more of the beauty of even the words that we're singing that are so rich and so filled from God's word to help us to sing beautifully and to know the beauty of God and of Jesus Christ. And when you see people come in contact with Jesus in the New Testament, they give him unashamed and extravagant mm. worship, even in the presence of other people, because that's what the gospel does to our hearts. Right. Yeah. We find men and women leaping and shouting with joy in yes. the New Testament. <laughs> it's, uh, it's amazing and beautiful. I love that note on capturing the beauty and kind of using instruments as well to help us harness the truth and the beauty of God's truth to lift that up to him in praise together. Yes. Well, brother, how is this truth presented by this text renewing and shaping your own heart? Yeah, you know, as I mentioned in the beginning of the sermon, the majority of the Psalter that we've been considering together contains laments, you know, cries of lament, sorrow. And so it's front loaded with tears, we could say. But here at the end, we find this uplifting note of joy inexpressible and filled with glory. There's no hint of sorrow or sadness in this psalm. It's sort of a glimpse of the glory that is to come when mm. Christ's kingdom consummately breaks through on earth as it is in heaven. And so that early discord of lament in the beginning of the Psalter is speaking to us about how the road to heaven is hard, that there is suffering that comes first before we enter into glory. The cross must come before the crown. Yet it's leading us to that final harmonious chord of praise. And we have this great assurance in this psalm and elsewhere in scripture through, the, through Christ that we too will join in that holy hallelujah mm -hmm. of praise. And that brings great comfort to us, whether we're in a valley or on a mountaintop moment in our life, that ultimately and finally Jesus will bring us all the way home. Amen. Yeah, in Psalm 150, there's no more petitions for God to forgive sin, right? There's no yeah. more God asking him to, to deliver him from persecution. There's no more darkness or sadness, right? It's just a psalm of total praise. And as you're mentioning, that's a, that's a psalm of heaven right there for sure. Amen. Yes. Yeah. In what way is this psalm correcting you? Yeah. As I think about in my life, the things that excite me, the things that delight me, or the things that I want to sing about, you know, I find my heart just kind of bursting out with joy and excitement, the things I want to celebrate, you know, our celebration of God's glory, our singing and worship of God should be more joyful and exuberant than all other things in this life, more than sports games when our, our team scores or wins a championship, and more than other joyful moments as well. And why is that? It's because God is the giver of all those good gifts that we delight in. And we don't wanna fall into the idolatry of delighting in the gifts without thanking and praising the giver most of all, our creator God. And so this Psalm redirects my heart to praise the one who deserves all the great praise that not only I, should give him, but you should give him, every living creature should give him as we consider in this psalm. Yes, piggybacking off what you just said about every living creature praising the Lord, I'm reminded in this psalm that uh, this side of heaven, there's still an evangelistic tone to this psalm where God is still calling out to the nations and to all of creation that everything that has breath is called to praise God. 
And in that psalm, we're, or that part of the psalm, we're reminded as the church of the commission of Jesus, as we hear at the end of Mark, where he says to his disciples, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. And we do that because we want everything that has breath to praise the Lord. What are some other practical takeaways that we could take away from Psalm 150? Yeah, very much tied to what you were just saying. There is a universal scope to this psalm. Mm. It isn't just a call for the Israelites or God's people, the church, to praise him. Instead, we hear, like you just said in verse 6, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. It's an invitation to all living creatures with that intention as well in it that this is, this is for everyone. This is what we are all called to. It doesn't matter who you are or where you are in life. This is what you and I should be doing. And ultimately, as I mentioned in the sermon, that God, he wants this to happen. And when he wants something to happen, it will happen in the end. And we've considered it time and time again that when Jesus returns, that every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and give him the praise and recognize him as the Lord, our God and our Redeemer, our King, and all will give him the honor and praise that is due him. And so why wait? You know, wherever you are in your life, if you're on the fringe, if you're still in the church but haven't committed by way of profession of faith, or if you're a long-standing Christian and a member of the church, let us all direct the focus of our hearts to praise God. Let us Mm. seek to follow him with all that we are and all that we have. Let us direct our breath our strength, our love to him who deserves it. Mm, amen. Yes, and, and that call to praise God with all that we are is not disconnected from our greatest joy and fulfillment as human beings. You know, God calls us to do this, and it's actually in doing this that we find what it means to truly live. Because as we uh, hear from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, right, question one, what's the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Pastor Daniel, as this psalm is kind of carrying us forward into the future, reaching all the way into glory, in the New Testament, we find a book, the book of Revelation, the Revelation of Jesus Christ, where John was given visions of that glory to come. Are there any passages of basically the fulfillment of this psalm? Yes, when you were preaching the sermon, I was thinking about Revelation 7, 9 and 10, where John says what you just mentioned, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And there you see heavenly worship, right? Again, all nations praising God, all clothed in the same righteousness of Christ, praising God together. And this is something that we are called to strive for this side of heaven, knowing that it is, again, like you said, God's desire and what he wants, he gets. And this side of heaven, we're to to labor in our worship, to worship God, even in in our differences, whatever those might be, centering our focus on the greatness of God, right? The character of God in on Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, it's so encouraging to think, you know, that there in Revelation that we have a picture of where we will be. We will be with that multitude. Mm-hmm. We will be among them if we believe and follow Jesus mm-hmm. by faith alone. Yeah. Uh, he will bring us all the way to that place of great 
glory and we will join in the great multitude with a loud voice Mm. praising God and singing hallelujah Mm. to our God and our King and to the Lamb who sits on the throne. And so as we conclude, the verse that I would recommend we commit to memory from this passage is one that we've repeated already multiple times Mm. now. It's verse six, let everything that has breath praise the Lord praise the Lord. And that last phrase is, again, hallelujah. Mm. And so it's been a joy, Pastor Daniel, to work with you through the Psalms and to bring this series to a close. And we hope, as always, that this midweek musing has been a blessing to you and to our congregation here in Ontario URC.